When I was in college, I met a uh, guy by the name of Rick, and he and I became uh, very good friends. And as the you know, your year progressed, we were getting near finals, and we're getting ready to go home. I said, what are you going to you know, do this summer? And he said, well, I'm going back to upstate New York. That's where he was from. I'm going to go back to New York, and uh, I'm, I'm just going to work the same thing that I've done since I've been 18 years old. And I said, oh, what's that? And he said, well, I'm going to be a skydiving instructor. And I laughed. And then I looked at him and saw that he was really quite serious. And I said, really, that's, that's what you've done? He said, yeah, I've been skydiving since I was like 14 years old. And I never knew anybody who'd done that before. I knew a few people have jumped out of a plane tethered to somebody, but I didn't know somebody had done it uh, repeatedly. Certainly nobody who had... Uh, had taught it, and I said, you must have some stories. And he, he told me some stories that uh, he had had that were, that were quite interesting. But he said that most, you know, common, and this was, you know, like I said, the skydiving where you put on a chute and you go. You're not tethered to anybody else. And the plane, I don't know if it's still like this, but the plane uh, that, uh, that, that he would go up in, that they would go up in, um, had a, a bar that was two bars, actually, about 16 inches long, and they'd open the door, and you would hold onto that bar with your hands, step out on the other bar, and uh, it would go three, two, one, go, and you were supposed to go. And he said, uh, he said, more times than you would imagine, of course, I want to tell you, not more times than I would imagine, because you'd never get me to do that. But he said, more times than you would imagine, uh, they, I would say, three, two, one, go, and people would say, let me back in the plane. And uh, they, they, they had trained for this, but they were, they were not ready to, uh, to let go. And he said, the tough thing is, he said, is that I, I couldn't let them back in the plane. He said, once you get outside the plane, it's too dangerous. There's all kind of things that could go wrong. Once you're outside the plane, you, you're committed, he said. And so on, on more than one occasion, he said to to cursing, screaming, crying. I had to pry people's hands off that bar and push them out of the plane. But I, I never forget the way that he characterized it. He said, once you're, once you're out of that plane, you're committed, you can't go back. He said, you have to let go with both hands and a whole heart. Well, you know, the Messiah had come. And rumor was spreading about him. And there were lots of people who were following him. They were, they were excited that the Messiah had come. They were expecting the Messiah to come, that David's son would come, that the kingdom would be restored to Israel. And they had all kinds of ideas about what that was going to look like. And Jesus appeared preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you know, when you read through the, the, the Gospels, you get this sense that, that most of the people who followed Jesus turned back and didn't follow him anymore. And Jesus had spoken about that, you know. He said that the, that, that the way is uh, broad that leads to destruction. Many people will go that way. But, but the road is, is narrow the gate is small that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Most of the people who followed Jesus turned back. 
sometimes think that many people who follow Jesus today would turn back if they had actually heard him and what he said. And if they actually read the scriptures carefully to see what he says. The kingdom that he brought and proclaimed is not a kingdom of this world. Now, you know, many people were expecting the Messiah to come hopeful for the kingdom of God. And they thought that that would mean a number of things. They thought that it would mean the end of Roman rule. They thought it would mean the end of the hated Roman taxes. They, they thought that it would, meant a, would mean a, a change for them in some way that would tend to their ease, that would tend to their wealth, that would tend to their prosperity, and, and none of that happened. And when this king told them that his kingdom was not of this world, that those who followed him must live by the standards of the kingdom that he was bringing and that those standards would bring to them every disadvantage in this world. Well, they left in droves. The kingdom that he came proclaiming requires an enormous and and, an unnatural commitment much more enormous, much more unnatural than letting go of, a, of, a, of the structure of a perfectly good airplane. It's a kingdom that requires you to embrace it with both hands and a whole heart. And that means letting go of any hope from this world with both hands and a whole heart. We're looking at Peter's first letter written to God's elect strangers in the world who were scattered throughout the nations. This is the letter of the apostle Peter to them and it is the word of God and the Holy Spirit to you. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you did not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Our Father, as we come into your presence today, by your word, this word, Father, by which you reveal yourself to us, disclose yourself to us, Father, fill us with your spirit that we might understand the implications and the hope that we have in this glorious gospel, the blessing that we have, that we are the recipients of those things into which even angels long to look. And help us to give you the glory today, not only with our lips and our prayers and our singing, but with our lives as we live them. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. When Peter writes this first letter, Nero is not yet emperor. There's no widespread systematic persecution of the church. But there was a mocking of Christian people for the things they believed for the principles they held and lived by. There was a discrimination against them by those who employed them, uh, either by some contractual basis or those who were slaves. There were many in the first century who were. And there was at times, we read about it in the book of Acts, local violence against them by individuals or mobs and injustices perpetrated sometimes by local governments. Does does any of that strike close to home? And the natural question when we encounter those things, when the Christians here encountered those things, is, is to ask the question and to seek out, how can I live comfortably in the kingdom of God and in the world in which I now reside? And the answer to that question is, you can't. Peter will tell us that Jesus set the path, that he walked the way that we are to walk. Um, He'll talk later about setting an example that we should follow in his steps. In the the book of Hebrews, we read, you know that passage, it's a famous one we usually translate about Jesus being the author and perfecter of our faith. You know the phrase I'm talking about? Um, The word there, contrary to what's become very common in English translation, is not author. We translate that author because Luther got to that word in Greek had no idea what it was, rendered it uh, with the word for author in German, and it kind of stuck. But the word there, the Greek word archegos, means somebody who leads from the front, who's a trailblazer, 
who sets the path that we're to walk. And Peter will tell us that he laid down an example that we're to follow in his steps. And if you think over the life of Jesus, and you won't have to use your imagination or your memory too much because Peter will unpack all this for us in his first letter. That, that Jesus is gentle and mild. He is inoffensive. In fact, go back in the Gospels and, and look at when the authorities, the, the religious authorities, first determined that Jesus must die. Do you, do you remember what the instance was, why that was? It was because he healed someone. And because of that, he was despised and rejected. We cannot expect differently. Jesus said we shouldn't be surprised if they treat the master this way, if his servants are treated in this way. And Peter tells us you have to embrace with both hands and a whole heart an unseen reality. And, and, and Peter, as he writes the praise, the extolling of uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ writes to those who by God's mercy have been begotten again. Those who have a new life in Christ. Um, to those whose lives have been radically changed. Not merely to those who have embraced a new philosophy as long as it suits them but those whose lives have been radically changed. Uh, who have been born again by the resurrection of Jesus to a living hope. It's a living hope because Jesus is a living Christ. He was dead and now he's alive forevermore. But it's a hope that's unseen. See, none of those to whom Peter writes had ever seen Christ. He had seen Christ, but none of those to whom he wrote ever saw them, ever saw him. And you haven't seen Christ. And, and what Peter writes to them is just as true as it is for you. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. They, they hadn't seen Christ, but they believed in him. You remember in John's gospel that when, that when Thomas had heard that Jesus had risen from the dead, he said, I don't believe that. And I won't believe it. I won't believe it, not merely until I see him, but until I can, until I can touch the wounds, until I can lay my hands on him. And, and then, all of a sudden, there was Jesus among them, and he said to Thomas, he said, Thomas, come here. He said, he said touch, touch the wounds and see that, that it is indeed I. And you remember what happened with Thomas? He fell back. He didn't need to touch, but he'd seen. And he said, my Lord and my God. And you remember what Jesus said to him? He said, Thomas, he said, you, you, you believe because you've seen, I tell you, Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen 
and yet believe. Peter calls, the church calls you to a living hope that is unseen based upon the trustworthiness of a risen Savior who is unseen. It's awfully easy to speak of faith in an unseen Christ. It's far more difficult to put our, our hopes in things that are unseen by us. Um, you know, somebody could speak about um, the confidence that they placed in their parachute packer all day long. They could say, well, I haven't actually met this guy in person, but he's got a phenomenal reputation. He's never let anyone down. The, the proof of that comes when you're standing at the bar of the plane. And we would much prefer to put our confidence in things that we can see. To put our confidence in princes and politicians who proclaim themselves our friends. To put our hope and our confidence in majorities and laws and armies. We much prefer to put our hope in things that we see. And over and against that, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8.24 that hope that is seen is no hope at all. He wrote to the church at Corinth in his second letter. He said, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transitory, they're passing. But the things that are unseen are eternal, they're stable, they're immovable. You know, no earthly gain, uh, even earthly gain that mimics righteousness, that looks something like the kingdom, is ever permanent. No earthly gain is ever permanent. You, you know, anybody who has ever um, done the laundry, cut the grass, built a fence or a shed, um, knows that the moment you finish that and you stand back and are satisfied with your work, the clock is ticking until that needs to be repaired or replaced. Nothing is permanent. Moth and rust destroy. Thieves break in and steal. And so Jesus tells us, don't store up for yourselves treasures on the earth. There's an unseen inheritance that we're promised. And, you know, my translation says that can never perish, spoil, or fade. But in the original language, it says imperishable, unspoilable, unfadable. You understand the point of that, of saying it that way? It, it's not merely that it's something that doesn't perish, that doesn't spoil, uh, that doesn't fade, it is imperishable. It cannot perish. It's unspoilable. It cannot spoil. It is unfadeable. It cannot fade. And, and for Peter, who writes this letter 
wanting badly for those who read it to be encouraged in their hope, there's no question that there is an inheritance there. Where is that inheritance? Peter says that it's an inheritance that is imperishable, unspoilable, unfadable, kept in heaven for you. See, what Peter's saying is that there's no question that this inheritance, which, which is not transitory, which does not pass away, is there. There's no question in Peter's mind. It's there. The question is, will you be? Peter is confident that those who belong to Christ will be shielded by God's power, he says, through faith. Faith in what is unseen. That is, for those who are Christ, God will keep their eyes from being averted from what is unseen, from being dazzled by the promise of things that are seen, so that we may lay hold of what is eternal, imperishable, unfadable, but not seen now. And, and Peter says that the inheritance is there, it's ready to be revealed. Now, you know, in the New Testament, there are a couple of words, a few words actually, that get translated as revealed. This word specifically means to be unveiled. That is, it's there, and, and we're waiting for the veil to be pulled back and for it to be shown. But, but the indication of that is that it's not an inheritance that's being prepared. It's not an inheritance that, you know, we hope will be there. Uh, some of you may have had the experience that you've, you know, you've contracted for a house to be built. And they said you can move in in May. <laughs> Maybe. Right, if we're done, because we're not done building it yet, and if everything goes according to schedule, that, that's not this. That's, this is there, and it's just waiting to be unveiled. It's waiting to be revealed. And Peter tells us when it will be revealed. He says, in the last time. Now, that, that, that phrase, last time, don't... Don't confuse that with another phrase that we find in the New Testament of the last days. And, and don't be taken in by those who try to predict uh, when the last days will be, the return of Christ in the last days. Right? Don't pay no attention to, to YouTube. Don't be taken in by those. The New Testament uses that phrase, the last days. It refers to that entire period uh, from Christ's advent to his parousia. In other words, from his incarnation to the time of his return. That's the last days. We're living in the last days. Peter was living in the last days. Until Christ returns, the church is a, the New Testament church is a last days institution. But the inheritance, Peter says, will be revealed in the, in the last time. Now, there's two words in the New Testament that we uh, have translated as time. One means uh, time in general, uh, just kind of uh, um, the, the flow of time. But the other means an appointed time. And that's the word that he uses here. It's the last appointed time. That is to say that the day when this will be revealed at Christ's coming 
is a date on God's calendar. You can't do anything to hinder it. You can't do anything to hasten it. And, and Peter, to those he writes, he says, uh, in verse 6, he says, in this you greatly rejoice. Now, this is not so uh, easy to see in the English, but in the original, the this that we rejoice in is the appointed time, is that time that we're waiting for. That, that is, that our, that our hope is fixed upon that time. And, and in saying this, you know, Peter does not deny, remember who he's writing to and why he's writing, um, he does not deny their or our earthly reality. The, the reality that is seen. He, he's not saying, oh no, that's, uh, none of that's real, the things that you suffered, oh, that's not, it's not as bad as you think. But he tells us to fix our attention and hope on the reality that is not seen, which is real and lasting. There is a now unseen reality bound up with a now unseen risen Christ. And the Holy Spirit calls upon you to embrace it. To do so takes two hands and a whole heart. And, and that's the hard part, you know. The, the, the church in America today wants to hedge her bets. She wants to eat her cake and have it too. She wants the crown without the cross. She wants the inheritance that God holds out to her and wants to try to grab hold of it with one hand and half a heart. With both hands and a whole heart, you must let go of any hope that comes from the present reality to gain the unseen reality. If you're holding on to Christ and his promises with both hands and a whole heart, expect trials here. That's what Peter's going to tell us in his letter. Expect trials here. I can tell by the way that you're getting this because a number of you are shifting uncomfortably in your seats. How many of you, I know that there are some of you, go to work and you're asked not merely to coexist with and to live peaceably with the LGBTQ plus agenda but pressure is put on you to embrace it and to affirm it. And you are not, I hope you're not, Peter will tell us uh, later in his letter that you ought not to be mocking and belligerent, but you are unable to normalize something that God's word condemns as a sin and that you know is destructive to people. It's not what God created us for, not what God created them for. And, and if Babylon normalizes it, well then, so be it, but you can't affirm it, you can't go along with it. Has that cost you something? 
Is the potential there for it to cost you something? Or maybe you've been asked to affirm uh, multiple genders or acknowledge that male and female, you know, it's just a construct and it's not a reality. And you know the word of God and you know that um, God created people, male and female. If, if, if the idea that our, that our gender is a uh, construct is something that Babylon normalizes, well, so be it, but you can't affirm it. Has that cost you something? Does it threaten to cost you something? And so it's very natural for you, for me, for the people to whom Peter wrote to would be to look for something seen on the horizon that you can put your hope and trust in. And so it may be that, you know, some politician arises and decries the current confusion and promises you that with your help, he'll drive it back underground. And looking for relief from your suffering, from what threatens you, you may be tempted to cast your lot in. But there's a cost. The cost is that you must ignore, deny, maybe even defend his sin. The, the cost is that you must never lament his unrighteousness. The cost is that any agenda uh, he promotes, you need to affirm, without question. In short, in exchange for relief from one area of suffering, you must be willing to confess to someone, Caesar is Lord. And if you do that, you can live at peace in the world. And if you do that, you've given up the inheritance that is unseen. It's natural to look for something seen on the horizon that you can put your hope in. It is supernatural for you to put your hope in what is unseen. Embracing Christ means doing so with both hands and a whole heart. And that means letting go of any hope that would come from this world with both hands and a whole heart. If you really are Christ's, not just if you like the parts of his kingdom that agree with your agenda, but if you really are Christ, you will not, you cannot escape trial here. And so Peter says in uh, verse 6, the second part of it, he says, though, though now, you know, as you're waiting for this salvation to be unveiled at the last time, and you greatly rejoice in that, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Some of your translations might say, and, and if they do, uh, they're rendering it well. It is necessary for you to. It's inescapable that you will. 
These trials, Peter says, come so that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, though it's refined by fire, may be proved genuine. Why is that important, that your faith be proved genuine? Because, my friends, if you look just a few verses up, it's that the inheritance that is imperishable, unspoilable, and unfadable that's kept in heaven uh, for you is done so through faith. You're shielded by the power of God through faith. That's why it's vital that the faith be real. And if it is, Peter says, you'll receive praise, glory, and honor. There'll be a well done, good and faithful servant. Not now. Not now. Expect hardship now. Expect mocking now. Expect derision now. Expect the social penalty now. Not now. But when Jesus Christ is revealed. And, and you know, lest they misunderstand, Peter says, I, I want you to know, I want you to understand, he says to those he's writing, he says, I want you to understand that this has forever been God's plan. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. You see, in Jesus' day, there were people who were, who were eager for, glad about, excited at the notion that the kingdom was coming, that the king had come, that the son of David was here because they had grasped what the prophet said with one hand and half a heart. They liked the glory part. They were offended by a humble Christ, by a suffering Christ, by a crucified Christ. And much of American evangelicalism today tries to embrace the Bible with one hand and half a heart. And they like that notion of praise, glory, honor, but are offended that that must wait until Christ is revealed. They're offended that to gain our inheritance will mean disadvantage and suffering for us now. They're offended, as Peter will later say, that Jesus, in the way that he lived, set for us an example that we must walk in his steps. And Peter says, but there's never been another plan. This is what the prophets have said all along. And it's the thing into which angels long to look. The hour's late. We're at a critical point in history. We cannot afford to play church. There are two realities. 
there is an unseen reality that promises blessing, not now, but when Jesus is revealed, promises blessing for faithfulness. And there is a seen reality that promises blessing right now for compromise. For compromise with the world, whether you compromise with the liberals of the world or you compromise with the conservatives of the world, it doesn't matter which Caesar you call Lord as long as you call Caesar Lord. That seen reality promises you blessing now for compromise, but promises, promises you suffering if you will be fully faithful to Christ. You're at the bar. You must choose what you will trust in, where your hope will be. You can embrace the unseen reality only with both hands and a whole heart. And that means letting go of any hope from the seen reality with both hands and a whole heart. Father, give us, give us grace. Swell our faith. Give us, Father, confidence and hope in that inheritance that is imperishable, unspoilable, unfadable, because it is bound up with the indestructible life of the risen Christ. An inheritance, Father, that is uh, not being built as we speak, but is there ready to be revealed. Increase our faith and our faithfulness. Through Christ our Lord we ask it of you. Amen. Amen.